before we get this episode started, we need to thank our wonderful sponsors. That are sponsors, especially our three annual sponsors, David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, and Campbell University Divinity School. This podcast wouldn't happen. So here's where you come in. Take a few minutes to go to each of their websites and check what they have to offer. Or if you really want to take it to the next level, be sure to tweet about this episode and thank our sponsors. This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, let me give you a snapshot of the next few weeks. We sat down with the podcast host and author Christian Pyatt, best-selling author Jonathan Merritt, as well as activist and author Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Be on the lookout for a few special episodes featuring a roundup of guests from the podcast stage of General Assembly. And now, on to our conversation. Well, our guest for this week's podcast is Dr. Kenyatta Gilbert. He is the Associate Professor of Homiletics at Howard University School of Divinity in Washington, D.C. And half of our staff will be happy to hear that you are a Baylor Bear, as well as a two-time graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary. Dr. Gilbert, thank you for engaging this conversation. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, glad to be here. Well, I do have to start off with a very serious and important question. Um, this can't wait. Do you think the Baylor Bears will have enough athletes to win their home and over against Abilene Christian Wake uh, Wildcats? You know, they uh, that is a five-star program that Baylor's facing off against for their home opener this year. Well, you can never sleep on the Baylor Bears, first of all. <laughs> And um, I think they have as good a chance as any. Um, the Baylor fan base is certainly a great motivating factor in all athletic contests at Baylor. So uh, let's be hopeful. Well, you know, if they can't win against Abilene Christian, the next week they're facing an even tougher opponent in the University of Texas at San Antonio, those, those historic roadrunners there in San Antonio. Right. So. So there's, there's always, um, well, anytime I have a chance to dump on the Baylor Bears for all my friends in CBF, I, I gladly take a stand there. So, so thank you for engaging the conversation. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, so those that aren't familiar with you, tell us a little bit more about you. Well, I'm a Waco native. I am in my mid forties. I cannot believe that. Uh, my, a bit of the history behind my, my journey and my trek from Baylor 
to uh, New Jersey and from there to DC, um, I never wanted to go to Baylor. That was not um, part of the plan, um, but often the providence of God uh, supersedes whatever plan that I have uh, in store. Um, point of fact, I'm somewhat of a legacy child by name. My father, uh, interestingly enough, was Baylor's first African-American graduate. Wow. And so this past um, November, we were able to celebrate that. Um, well, actually, this year, I'm sorry. We were able to celebrate that 50th year uh, since his graduation. And uh, it was just a great affair that we had in uh, on the campus of Baylor. Um, my, my upbringing, uh, my father was a pastor, local pastor in Waco. Uh, he was uh, physically uh, disabled. He actually ministered and preached the gospel from his wheelchair. He was very uh, ill, mostly uh, through most of my uh, formative upbringing. And so whatever empathy that I have for those who are marginalized, those who are physically challenged, um, I learned that, I think, pushing his wheelchair from hospital to um, sick visits uh, across Waco. And uh, from Waco, um, I matriculated again at Baylor with a bachelor, uh, degree, bachelor's degree in political science and religion. And really at that point, I uh, felt like law school was the direction, um, but um, there was a tug on my heart um, as I began to take the ministry studies courses at Baylor. And it just led me to seminary and ended up leaving Texas after my father's death. Um, he died actually my freshman year at Baylor. Uh, and so that was a pretty disorienting time. But uh, from there, I attended Princeton uh, theological Seminary, and there I met my lovely bride, and um, after my uh, graduation from there with my Master of Divinity de degree, I um, served a church in Brooklyn, uh, New York Concord Baptist Church of Christ there, and from there um, I took a position, I applied to Princeton's PhD program in Practical Theology with uh, concentration in homiletics. And uh, from that point on, um, uh, that program uh, extended a bit longer than I had hoped, um, but I was able to secure a position at Howard University here in Washington, D.C., and for the last 12 years, I've um, served as um, the um, professor of homiletics here. So that's just a bit about me. I, I, I failed to mention I have three beautiful daughters, and if I don't say that, then um, I'm in trouble after this interview is done. <laughs> yeah, you already won points with your wife. Now, Concord is that <laughs> is Concord uh, Church of Christ? Is that right down from Prospect Park? Um, it's in uh, Bedside, Brooklyn. Um, my bearings geographically are not that good. I would just kind of come from New Jersey. I'd commute from New Jersey to uh, to Concord. It's on Marcy Avenue in uh Bedside okay. uh, area of Brooklyn. Yeah. We did some work on a on a mission trip years ago in Prospect Park, um kind of a partnership with um the town of Brooklyn. So um Oh uh, wow, wonderful. Yeah, sure sounds familiar. So well uh so you ended mm -hmm. up in, in DC. Um yeah. what's it like being a 
a theologian and a, um, a trainer of pastors in DC right now? Well, um, I love my work. I love what I do. Um, I care about what I do. And I think that um, educators certainly are not the best paid um, workers in our economy, but um, uh, the rewards are tremendous, um, especially as um, when I'm in the classroom and a light bulb comes on for someone or when um, they are terrified, particularly those uh, persons who never preached before, um, who dread coming uh, to my course in the second year. And um, um, the women that I've been um, fortunate to work with who've um, prepared themselves for ministry in some ways and then are pleasantly surprised that uh, they're good preachers, they're wonderful preachers, and uh, hope to do more of that in their respective ministries. And so my deepest investment, I think, as a, as a professor um, is to pour as much as I can into those who are emerging voices. Um, I think my voice um, uh, makes less impact on those who've been in ministry for years and years uh, because uh, a lot of what I experience um, is the, the um, the difficulty in helping, helping people unlearn much of the embedded theology um, that they bring um, to their ministries and to their vocation. Uh, and so again, yeah, the, the classroom space, um, I refer to it as my movable pulpit. I'm not a senior pastor anywhere, though I serve uh, as an associate minister at a Baptist church uh, in Silver Spring, Maryland. But um, yeah, I'm just fascinated by um, what people bring to the seminary or divinity school context and what they leave with. Now, are you the kind of professor that assigns the books you've written for students to take for your courses? <laughs> the, whether, whether or not, I'm sorry, whether or not I sign. Assign, assign the, the books that you've written for your students to read for your class. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I mean, that's I think, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think some are have reservations in doing that, but um at Howard, I am the only homiletics professor. I'm I'm the preaching professor here. And um I uh I think in some ways it has given me a type of academic freedom to do the kind of work that I think um not only matters and that's timely, but uh, allows me to develop my voice in a way that I would not be able to do um, at any other institution. Well, literally when you're the expert on it, there's nothing wrong with you saying, hey, buy my book. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, expert, if ex you, that, you know, that, that terminology somewhat scares me. I never feel like I've quite arrived even as a preacher myself. Um, and so just, you know, constantly trying to learn um, my craft and be faithful to my vocation. Well, I'm, I'm going to go out there and say that you're an expert in this. You specialize in the history, theory, and practice of African-American preaching. 
Um, your research focuses on the theology and rhetoric of prophetic preaching, African-American religion, hermeneutical theory, and constructive practical theology. You've authored three books on preaching. And in addition to that, you founded an uh, initiative called The Preaching Project. So yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're the expert in this area. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Okay, Andy. <laughs> All right. So, so tell, tell us a little bit more about, about The Preaching Project. So the Preaching Project was a uh, ministry-inspired vision that I had in 2011 after publishing my first book. Uh, And my desire in writing that book was to, first of all, trace the historical legacy of African-American preaching. And then second, to, uh, in many ways, uh, dispel some of the myths around Black preaching. What does that mean? And what is the um, the character uh, character beyond you know dreadful caricature of the black reverend, and to give some working description uh, about um, the 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 uh, terminology itself, what is meant by African American preaching? So I sought out in that book to um, to stand upon the shoulders of others and and take a stab at uh, defining it. Now, the Preaching Project uh, is a website ministry, and it has uh, it has um, offered me a platform to share resources with ministers, as well as um, um, formally trained and informally trained ministers. Just to, and I see it as a repository of information. There are articles. There are uh, other homiletics resources. Uh, there are book purchasing options on 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 the website. Uh, I try to lay out my vision in a systematic way, and how some of the the emerging voices who are preaching that I think are um, that I would commend to others to to give uh, to give a look. And um, that ministry is essentially trying to mine the gap between the church and the academy and to provide educational uh, resources to ministers serving African-American churches and communities. And and that is not an exclusivist type of approach, but it does say that there are particular issues that are, um, uh, that really negatively impact the African-American community uh, more so than other communities. And so I'm very culturally specific about um, persons that are, and communities that I'm trying to reach because I think, um, for one, my voice and my uh, thinking about the subject matter comes from uh, come from an indigenous um, um, grounding in my own faith and my normative views about uh, the Christian tradition. What's fascinating uh, about the website is that, um, you know, you're giving people a platform uh, to share mm-hmm. their voice, to share uh, their calling, to share this, um, these theological convictions that they might not necessarily have this place. So mm-hmm. uh, what, was it, what was the drive behind that? Well, it certainly wasn't uh, financial, <laughs> although I, I do understand that uh, at this point, funding vision is is key and so the administrative piece of it 
while I um, see it as somewhat underdeveloped uh, at this time, just because of um, uh, acquiring financial resources and officially cert certifying this ministry as a nonprofit organization, uh, which I intend to do over the summertime, uh, and just to kind of seek um, persons who are willing to invest in the vision that I have for uh, for this this project. Um, what motivated me uh, specifically, I think, um, had more to do with just the frustration uh, of of the limited engagement or the the things that I just don't see happening in um, black congregations specifically uh, in in respect to uh, reaching out to community to help in the restoration project how how does how do we hold ourselves accountable for that as african american uh, Christians but also how do we navigate the culture in which we are are living um, this pluralistic environment um, where there are many narratives uh, about what does it mean to practice one's faith in um, uh, in a contextualized way, and how do, how does one um, sustain a Christ-centered vision for doing this work? And so I see the preaching project as doing just that. Whether uh, preachers are uh, quote unquote expository preachers, whether they preach in a topical um, uh, or with a topical oriented um, uh, approach to sermonizing, uh, whether that's whether that's in unconventional unconventional ways and being uh, shared in uh, parish and non-parish um, uh, settings, I just think it's important for clergy um, to come out of the sanctuaries and to find um, their voice in the communities where they are most um, needed. We need to pause and tell you about this week's presenting sponsor. Ministering to Ministers Foundation has been offering hope for ministers and their families in tough situations and help through health promotion, intervention, and renewal for over 23 years. Healthy transition wellness retreats for ministers and spouses are currently offered in Alabama, Georgia, Michigan, North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, and Wisconsin. By offering spiritual, emotional, physical, social, and legal assistance to ministers in all faith groups, our hope is to help them develop healthy relationships, productive work environments, and worthy transitions. For more information about the MTM ministry, contact us at 804-594-2556 or visit mtmfoundation.org for more details. You know, you talk about um, the culture and and how we approach church is, is always changing. Um, you know, for you, and, and probably it's hard to, to pin this down, or you could just say, I wrote three books on it, go, go check there. But, um, you know, <laughs> for you, what's your theology of preaching? Um, for me, I look at, um, I'm more of a hermeneutics guy. And so thinking theologically about preaching has more to do for me with seeing uh, a holistic vision or preaching. I think um, that uh, Luke 4, 16 through 21 um, is the, uh, the floor, biblically speaking, for the vision 
uh, in which I um, I uh, detail and describe as the uh, what does it mean to preach in the Jesus tradition? So theologically speaking, uh, my compass is rooted in the Gospels. And uh, I try to look at uh, the religion of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and thinking about what does this mean in light of uh, the cross-resurrection um, event and how... Um, how our culture, uh, specifically African, well, specifically American westernized Christianity, how that has been decoupled in uh, overprivileging uh, the epistles, overprivileging Paul and uh, thinking about, uh, is, there, is, there, is there just one way to see the text? Or can we be honest and say that we all come to um, the biblical text with prejudices, with biases, with questions um, that um, that are not universal, that are not uh, foundationalist, but questions that really have to do with how do we how do we live our lives in light of 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 God's expectation for us and God's expectation which uh, in the ways in which we treat our our brothers and sisters who are perhaps not of the Christian faith. So theologically speaking, I would say uh, my preaching vision is very uh, extremely ecumenical. Um, although I uh, honor my Baptist heritage, um, I, uh, I seek to ground my, that vision of preaching uh, in, at, and the, and the, the, inaugural vision of Jesus Christ being that lens through which one can um, can shape their homiletical vision. So speaking to a preaching professor, I'm taken back to um, my days in seminary and my preaching professor, uh, Roy DeBrand. And some of the funniest things I remember is, is him sharing the uh, styles of preaching and the habits of preaching that annoyed him the most. Do you want to, do you want to <laughs> divulge any of those in this conversation? <laughs> oh, well, um, let's, let, yeah, let's go down that, Let's go down that road. Well, uh, prosperity preaching is um, the bane of, I think, um, of, of where preaching has headed. I mean, um, the prosperity gospel theology has all but uh, suffocated the voice of the preacher in this uh, landscape um, to over-promise over people that by their faith, they will be blessed with um, finances, uh, impeccable health. And if that does not uh, if that if that does not become their reality, then there's something deficient about their faith. And I just think that that is very insidious and very dangerous. Um, but in this context, um, it's very understandable because we are uh, conspicuous consumers and tend to be uh, driven by market and less so by um, the ministry of Jesus. This podcast is sponsored by Campbell University Divinity School, committed to Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused theological education, and committed to help you answer your call with a variety of master's and doctoral-level programs. Curious about what Campbell's mission looks like in action? You should meet Jason Duke. 
Jason began his journey as a history major at Campbell, completed a Master of Divinity degree, and then he and his wife, Lori, went to Turkey for two years as support missionaries. On their return, Jason entered law school with the goal of providing financial platform for further bivocational ministry and mission work. But God had yet another turn in the journey for Jason. After graduating with his Juris Doctor and passing the bar, Jason entered the Marines and now serves as a JAG officer. Sometimes living out your call takes unexpected directions. How might Campbell help you discover or sharpen your call? Campbell University Divinity School offers Master of Divinity, Master of Arts in Christian Ministry, and Doctorate of Ministry programs in flexible formats that follow students to have a rich face-to-face classroom experience, even while working or commuting to Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. For more information on our master's and doctoral level programs, visit divinity.campbell.edu. So in March, you released your latest book, Exodus Preaching, Crafting Sermons About Justice and Hope. And this book is different than your previous work. For example, um, The Journey and Promise of African-American Preaching was this theological framework around the prophetic, priestly, and sagely voices of trivocal preaching, as you've called it. Um, a Pursued Justice was a historical examination of the traditional African-American preaching and what that means for a pluralistic and postmodern society. Um, in Exodus Preaching, you wrote, we often cherry pick or conveniently jump over biblical passages that rub us the wrong way. To this is only natural because we need things to line up, don't we? Uh, mm-hmm. What if we are offended by our Christian sensibility and refuse to be bullied into what they, we want this text to say? Uh, do we realize that God respects and remains unintimidated by whatever manner of questions we bring to God? Um, this this book is is a deep theological field guide to preaching uh, through crafting strategies and techniques and exercises. Um, yet it's not directed at just the every uh, day um, art of preaching for sermons, but it's a, it's it's engaging into this deeply transformational act of of seeking justice. So, so what was the motivation behind this particular style of book? Wow, that, that's, that's a great question. So uh, my second work, of Pursue Justice, uh, is primarily written for an academic audience. Um, I hate to say it this way, but it was more so my tenure book. And, um, but I knew that my passion uh, was really to write for the church. And uh, from that, that a Pursued Justice book, uh, which was published uh, by Baylor Press, um, I wanted to do something that was uncomplicated, that uh, was accessible, um, but yet had uh, a scholarly um, um, voice that um, could be um, accessed by persons who are formally or informally trained or um, novice preachers. Uh, I think if, 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 if I'm kind of uh, honest, my principal audience would be just kind of this emerging um, um, persons who are who are doing good work, but who are less rec- le- less recognized, and um, I think have wisdom to share um, and creativity to um, to also um, share to preachers who are in training. And uh, I wanted to write a book that uh, a senior pastor could say, wow, this is inspiring for, uh, for my ministry. It gives me uh, somewhat of a wake-up call, but it, it's something that I would want ministers in my 
um, training program or church institute or those that I'm sending to seminary to say, wow, you have to read this book. And, um, and I hope that it's timely. And I also hope that it has a long shelf life. And so I tried to write this um, kind of thinking about multiple platforms. So what does it mean to look at hip hop, for example, and uh, find uh, parallels between uh, hip hop voices that are um, lyricizing uh, theologically and preaching and, and asking the question, can hip hop be preaching? You know, so those are some of the things that I um, tried to do uh, in in uh, Exodus preaching. One of the quotes sticks out to me. Um, you wrote, "Preachers must speak a crucial witness when circumstances of death and degradation touch human life." The two things are important to understand. First, the preacher will never exhaust the varied ways of looking at a singular situation that may call forth the preacher's address. Thus, to address a topic of concern assumes both risk and a wager. The preacher mm -hmm. never names reality in moments where all I's can be dotted and T's crossed. Let's, let's settle mm -hmm. there for, for a little while. Talk about mm -hmm. the risk and in, in, in wager of preaching. Uh, again, this, this speaks to the, the first comment that I made. We never, we never quite master this. This is... We are stewards of the mystery of God. And I think a good bit of preaching today uh, is so clear-cut and prescriptive that uh, it's absent of the mystery of God. Like what, what is, if we talk about a, a God who, is, who has spoken and who continues to speak, then our preaching ought to convey that, that we don't uh, really have all the answers. Um, I think when, uh, we overprivilege being right and less, um, less privilege the, uh, I think, what God expects of us, and that is to be faithful. Um, I think we, we do a disservice to the gospel. I actually think uh, we distort it. And so uh, for, for me, um, I just believe that uh, we're all in process. We're journeying. Some of us have um, much more wisdom regarding the vocation that has to be shared. Um, and I just, uh, I just believe um, that um, on the journey, we have much more to learn and to, to discover than um, we perhaps realize. I think I got at your question. If, if, if I did not, could you pose it again? No, I, I think... There, there's a, a tremendous vulnerability of, of mm. preaching a sermon, whether it's, you know, your 12-minute sermon if you're coming from the Episcopal tradition or your, you know, 50-minute mm. sermon if you're coming from so many other traditions. Um, it, there's a vulnerability oh. of, of speaking on behalf of what you've interpreted Scripture. There's a vulnerability on speaking on issues and topics that um, you could be sitting in an audience uh, with people who could not see um, eye to eye with you on this. So there is sure. that, that risk and, and there is that wager that you're willing to put out there uh, for the sake mm -hmm. of, of the calling, for the saking of trans helping be a part of transforming this beloved community of God. So I, I wonder, I wonder if, if you have some stories of uh, sometimes that maybe you took a risk. If you, um, 
paid a wager to to step out and, and to speak on something that you weren't sure how mm-hmm. it was going to be received. Yeah, that, that quite um, <laughs> uh, that's uh, that's been my experience. I would say in the last five years of my preaching life, I have found myself drawn to the prophetic literature uh, quite a bit. And I just recall I was uh, scheduled to preach a sermon at Princeton University Chapel. And the lectionary reading that week um, came from uh, Amos. And uh, I did not uh, feel led to preach the gospel lesson that Sunday. And I I needed to to preach a hard word. And that word was, um, I think it, I didn't get much uh, verbal feedback, <laughs> which one may become accustomed to in African-American churches. Um, but it was a word that I, that I thought needed to be shared because of the gross materialism in our, um, in our country. And, um, and just believing that uh, the prophet has something to say about um, being in an age of dwindled uh, empathy and human tragedy and social decay and so much of what i was i was led to do in that message was what i believe was a pretty hard word and um not many people shook my hand and those who did (laughs) um you know some of them were like wow that was refreshing and um again that that was that was one example of kind of uh, taking us taking a risk that uh, would not necessarily uh, generate applause. I think, in many regards, um, you know, those that were trying to help me form my theology of preaching uh, mm-hmm. oftentimes spoke about, you know, presenting. I don't think they would maybe use this language, but this is oftentimes how it was perceived that. You've got to have yourself together as you deliver this message, and and you spoke about making sure that I's are dotted and T's are crossed. So, for right. you, what does that mean? Well, for me, that has to do with just your your level of of engagement and study, um, taking the time to script, to craft, um, to actually you know work a manuscript. Um, and shape it in a way in which you want or intend the listener to hear it. Although, uh, as you know, perhaps if you're preaching, um, we're not responsible for exactly how people hear. But um, I think if the spirit is leading um, one, then a message that honors God and honors the people who listen um, ought to be delivered with uh, integrity. I mean, we don't go to a hospital expecting the doctor to to practice on us without having um, appropriate training. And um, I just think it's important for the the preacher of the gospel to do that. But again, if one looks at the sermon as being open-ended in in ways, then, you know, you give your best offering. Um, And uh, I tell my students, I say, you know, if if your pastor tells you on Friday or Saturday night that I need you to preach, then um, rather than saying to him or her, 
that uh, you ought to carry a sermon in your pocket, I, I simply say, um, we can all preach John 3.16, for God so loved the world that God gave. And, and talk about the giving God. Um, how, can we, how can we do that and say that with integrity? Um, every minister of the gospel, I believe, um, ought to be able to say something about the love of God. And, um, and so when those things, when all I's and T's can't be crossed, then there ought to be something in the core of the minister's uh, DNA that can talk about the love of God. Well, and to not take that quote out of context, it comes in a part of the book where you're talking about injustice. So when it comes yeah. when it comes to matters of injustice, how do ministers how do ministers begin to approach that from the pulpit um, with a way with integrity where maybe things are things are in the middle of crisis things are in the middle you know justice is justice and injustice are never this singular moment in time it's a continuum so how do we how do we approach that with with a sense of crossing our eyes and dotting our t's right right, that, right crossing our t's and dotting our eyes. <laughs> Well, I think um, the place to start is prayer. So prophetic preaching is God-summoned discourse. So we don't wake up and say, uh, I think I'm going to preach prophetically today. Um, as much as we do um, in prayer discern um, that which is going on in the culture that the people might have on their hearts and they expect the preacher to have something to say about it. Um, and preaching is it not about life and death? And so we, if we live in the sphere of death, and um, the expectation of the people is to hear, be to hear the word of God for a particular time on a particular day, um, then it's incumbent upon us to read not only the Bible but to read um, the culture. And I, um, I just believe that. Some some are 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 oriented to um, preaching preparation being driven by uh, the text to the situation, but I think that the rhetorical situation can also drive the preacher's preparation uh, and be equally uh, effective, and um, there be integrity in that preparation process. I I I think. One can run the risk when one preaches topically to uh, allow, for example, politics to um, to um, uh, to ground the sermon, and you can preach politics and not the gospel. But I also believe that uh, one can preach doctrinally faithful sermons and it not be gospel. Uh, it will. It might not be good news for that particular. Um, listener or on that on that day and um and so when you look specifically at crises in african-american communities the um educational and financial disparities uh, looking at um the high incarceration rate you think about uh, what does it mean to to preach when um, black lives are being assaulted and persons are being pulled over uh, for broken taillights and they end up dead. Like what, I mean, what, what, what is that? 
And how can Christians be silent in context where these uh, realities are? And if the situation um, drives the, the discourse, then I think one can be equally effective, but one cannot be closed off into, um, uh, in their study, um, um, seeing their task as being the herald of the gospel without, being, without ha having eyes and ears. Um, to what's going on on the ground. Mm. Well, the great um, late James Cone actually just passed a couple of weeks ago. Um, mm -hmm. in the cross and the lynching tree. Uh, the gospel of liberation is bad news to all oppressors because they have defined their freedom in terms of slavery of others. So, right. You know that's the this is the uncomfortable nature of of preaching. You know that. Um, and especially in the prophetic style, which you have written so much on, that we're we're going to hit on things. We're going to go at things that um, are going to make parishioners uncomfortable. So how how right. do we how do we begin the conversation in the pulpit, and how do we extend that uh, into what we do during the week with with our flock, with those that we have been charged with being responsible for? Mm -hmm. I think we, we have to do a better job of educating our congregations. Um, again, many of them receive a steady diet of prosperity preaching um, that um, gives them this false sense of hope that um, God will bless them indiscriminately without expecting much from them. And then um, we live in such a culture of theological relativism where it seems like anything goes and that... Um, God wants us to simply be um, at peace with everyone without the expectation that one has to work toward peace. Um, I also um, think it's very, uh, very interesting how, uh, how deeply invested persons have been um, in ensuring um, their economic security and to do that at the expense of their own, the integrity of their faith, I think is uh, tragic. It's a, it's a tragedy, um, um, as, as a travesty as well as it is tragic. And uh, making those concessions in order to keep um, themselves and those persons whom um, they consider the in-group in power, uh, I think significantly um, has the capacity to distort the gospel, um, and um, and it's and it's it's embarrassing, um, and it's um, it's an indictment on uh, the Christian uh, family when um, we don't deal with the legacy of slavery. Um, I do understand that it's very painful for many um, um, white people to hear. Uh, about the, the the language of uh, white privilege or uh, white supremacy, and uh, many can't hear that. They can't hear it, especially because often when it's um, when that terminology is used, um, there's no sense of of context around what that means. And so, if if in fact one has been deceived throughout their lives um, or shielded from the reality that um, that most people of color in this country, specifically 
those who were uh, the economic uh, base uh, historically, who uh, were basically free labor um, for uh, the majority culture. If one cannot take a take a, uh, a a real look at that and see how that has repercussive effects on um, people today, then there is a sense of of masking reality and um, and it's painful. It's painful to to say to oneself, you know, my ancestors purchased people, my ancestors uh, abused people, my ancestors uh, have created for me. Um, uh, a place where I'm um, I'm complicit if I don't say anything, or uh, or I'm made to feel guilty for um, for something that I did not uh, personally do. And I just think that that's the that's the hard conversation that um, many of us are not willing to uh, to have. Uh, but um, again, I think there are persons in the culture who must rise up as the bridge makers who can have those painful conversations without demonizing um, one group or pitting one group uh, against another. Hmm. There's one last aspect of the book that I, I thought we could touch on. Um, and this is really near and dear to um, the culture and history of CBF. Um, you know, I don't know how familiar you are, but, um, you know, we, we came out of Southern Baptist tradition and one of the, one of the pillars of, um, our fellowship is uh, the endorsement of women in ministry. And in chapter four, you hit on the gender bias and, and pulpit discrimination. And you wrote African-American women make up more than 70% of active membership of generally Mm -hmm. any African-American congregation. Yet Americans, Christians, pulpits, especially African-American pulpits, remain male-dominated spaces. Um, can right. you speak a little bit uh, around um, women in ministry from your tradition and, and where you see that progressing? Um, oh, a- another great question. Um, I do, um, my heart laments the reality that we're in 2018 and um, many um, bar women from uh, from preaching and pastoring. Um, I know many will have some theological quabble um, with me about my particular uh, stance on liberating the voices of of women preachers. I you know I would be even uh, questioned by own my own family members whether or not uh, I'm reading the text appropriately or whether or not I'm appropriating it in the way in which uh, honors God. But, you know, when I think about African-American um, women preachers, um, women preachers have been preaching uh, longer than as as early as the 1800s. And, um, and though uh, in some contexts were considered unofficial preachers, they were ministering just as effectively and as fervently uh, and as spirit-led as the male preachers. And so uh, if the text it's, itself says that in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and my sons and daughters will prophesy, um, then who are we to bar people from the pulpit based on um, gender identity? 
just think that that there's an arrogance behind that, and um, and I just don't think it's right. I think um, I think when I look at the African American community, for example, and seventy five or seventy percent of our memberships are are women, and um, and folks in congregations just don't feel it proper for a woman to um, be the senior pastor. Um, I'm 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 wondering how um, how how paradoxical uh, that can be when um, there are many um, men who uh, have not given uh, integrity to the vocation for uh, whatever reason. And um, and so I think again we'll figure it out in the wash if God is still God and if we will all have give an account. I think uh, I pray that I'm on the, the right side of affirming um, women in ministry. Um, I've heard some some amazing sermons preached by women um, that will reach a general constituency much more effective than it could if it came from, um, from a, a, a man. I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say you're on the right side. I mean, it was Jesus that commissioned the women to go and preach the first message of resurrection. That's right. That's right. Well, for our listeners, if you want to catch up with Dr. Gilbert, you can visit KenyattaGilbert.com. Find Exodus Preaching wherever books are sold. Dr. Gilbert, thank you for taking time to engage this conversation. I am grateful for your powerful written work and the innovative training you are bringing to a new generation of pastors. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 